Hey everybody, it's Chris. If you're a sports fan like me, or you're just a fan of a great story, you gotta check out Press Box Access, a sports history podcast hosted by Todd Jones. Todd sits down with fellow sports writers who experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past 50 years, and they share some of the stories behind the stories, some of which they've only told to each other. What I personally love are the wild stories that you might not hear so much about on SportsCenter over the years. Like when Indiana-based sports journalist Bob Kravitz recounts the time Bobby Knight showed up naked to an office meeting with him and then banned him from the Hoosiers' locker room for the next three years because Bob wrote a story he didn't like. Or when Alexander Wolfe tells a story about going out on the town in Chicago with Dennis Rodman and Carmen Electra in the middle of a Bulls playoff series. Or when Dan Wetzel talks about what it was like to be in the media room when Temple basketball coach John Chaney stormed into UMass coach John Calipari's press conference after a game and threatened to kill him. These wild and fun stories, paired with stories about real sports greatness, you know, like the 1970s Steelers being the greatest NFL dynasty ever, or the legendary rivalry between Larry Bird and Magic Johnson, and even the impact of protests for social justice issues in sports, make Pressbox Access a show you should check out. Pressbox Access is part of the Evergreen Podcast family, and it's available all the places you get your pods, and you can also find Pressbox Access on YouTube. Go check it out. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Following the breakup of the Pixies, Kim Deal put all her energy into her side project, The Breeders. Their debut single, Cannonball, supposedly about Pixies singer Frank Black, only peaked at number 44 on the Billboard charts, but has continued to be one of the defining songs of the 90s. This week, we're joined by May guitarist Zach Gehring to decide if the Breeders brought the one-hit thunder or if we are both cuckoo cannonballs for loving them so much. On the last splash. One hit is all you need to make the money guaranteed, and you can live off royalties forever. And it makes me wonder is it just a blunder, or is it one hit? Hey, Zach, we're going to talk about the Breeders' Cannonball. Yes, uh, I'm really excited uh, to talk about Cannonball by the Breeders. Dude, we are around the same age, so we both probably had the same experience. I love where this song takes me. It takes me back to such a cool time, not only like in life, but it was a very angsty time in life, but for music... 1993 1994 oh man such a good time man it was a great year um first of all i want to ask i want to clarify i want to confirm how old are you i'm 39 39 okay i'm 38 so we must have both been 93 was middle school for us right yeah eighth eighth ninth grade somewhere around there i I remember this song being a buzz clip on mtv Okay, yeah, the song came out in August of 93, so that would have been opening of our senior year? Of middle school. Of middle, oh, yeah. <laughs> Eighth grade, the senior yes. year of middle school. Yes, <laughs> senior year of middle school. Uh, yeah, that's what I always, when I, when I refer to senior year, I'm always talking about senior year of middle school. <laughs> Eighth grade, crazy year. But, dude, could any other time, other than, like, 1993, 1994, could a song like Cannonball be a hit well that's what i've been thinking on since we decided to do this podcast and we selected a song just how the 90s um environment was in this kind of transitional period because it had a lot of the indie music and quote unquote underground music kind of coming to the surface and and kind of getting some daylight with records like dgc and geffen and i think this is a prime example of what was happening in that era 
I think another one I always think on is like the Melvins and um, Stoner Witch. Just listen, that, that record came out on Atlantic, and I know we're not talking about the Melvins today, but just the way it sounds, it's just one of these things where, and the Breeders Cannonball, similarly, that would never fly um, today in any kind of mainstream space. And I think that's what's so amazing about the 90s is that you had this very, very open opportunity for a lot of really rad bands, especially rock bands. I know you and I are rock guys, so it was amazing. Yeah, I mean, dude, the I guess it was probably primarily Nirvana, but probably the entire Seattle research or not resurgence kind of surgeons of music <laughs> that kind of opened the door at every major record label to sign such strange bands such like and what other, what other time is ween gonna sign to a major label off of a four track recording and things like that were happening and that's so cool yeah i'm just thinking about butthole surfers too because that band was just wild in the 80s and then when they had mainstream recognition it was in the 90s and that's another thing where you just like a band like butthole surfers to have mainstream recognition it just speaks again. Electric, uh, Electric Larryland was the record that was in '96, so it's a little bit later than Cannonball, but still in this era of really rad exploration uh, and alternative music. Right, and and what was crazy too is like now we all know things have changed, minus maybe for like Taylor Swift and people like that. But for the most part, like now, if you're going to do an independent record, you're you're doing it on a shoestring budget, mm -hmm. and and you know you don't have the luxury of getting million dollar budgets to make albums and people aren't going to the record store and buying the physical copies of your album minus some collectible vinyl and stuff like that. But this is still like, that was probably the biggest era for that because you think of like some of the albums that came out in the nineties that went on to be some of the biggest selling album. Like for example, Alanis, I think Alanis Morissette, uh, Jagged Little Pill is like one of the top selling albums of all time. I did this. Uh, I looked up 1993 albums, albums that were released in 93, um, same year as Last Splash was released, which is what Cannonball is on, the Breeders right. record. And it's, it's insane. This list, not only have a fraction of this list, and I focused on, on rock music. Um, so it's not even getting into hip hop or any other genre, but Tool, Undertow came out, Radiohead's Pablo Honey came out. Liz Fair's Exile in Guyville came out. Cat and Crow, nice. August and Everything After Nirvana and Uteros came out. Um, Pearl Jam Versus came out. Little Sir Cleo. I could go on. Damn, that's so many good ones. Even right there already. That's so. You just named like three of the most iconic albums, like in in my life. In the la yeah, in my life. I mean, that's not even. I mean, Fugazi's and on the Kill Ticker came out that year. The Cranberries. All's breaking things came out. So even the punk rock more like the scene that was still kind of just un underneath this kind of blossoming like alternative rock scene that went mainstream. Yeah, just so many records. A tribe called Quest's Midnight Marauders came out. I, I marked that one just because I'm a big tribe fan, but it's just a crazy year. And I think, and I was thinking about this, that Cannonball is like an essential type of 90s rock track to me both in the way it's kind of mixed, the way the, the song is uh, structured. And the video was directed by Spike Jones and Kim Gordon. I mean, that's yeah. like that's like a picture of a, a perfect that, that, 90s thing. That is, not, that is the 90s encapsulated into <laughs> one song and music video. Like if you, wanted, if you wanted to tell somebody what the 90s were like, you could just be like, okay, watch this video. This is what yeah. it was like. There was a bowling ball just rolling through the entire 90s. <laughs> <laughs> and this is what everything looked like. This is what everyone dressed like. Exactly. Uh, it's like a stylistic snapshot of, yeah. of the 90s, both sonically and like the video and, you know, everything about it. So, and the band was made up of so many heavy hitters. Yeah. Obviously, Kim Deal. On the first record, I think the drummer from Slint was in the band. Just like uh -huh. all these uh, members of very influential indie rock bands that we don't think about when we think about the Breeders um, necessarily, or, or I don't. I should speak for myself. But they're all informed and a part of this kind of music group. Kim Deal, for anyone listening from the Pixies, you know, this, this might be one of those controversial things to say i feel like i say a lot of these kind of things on this podcast but i think i like the breeders more than i like the pixies and i, I know that that that's really going out on a limb but like this album 
Last Splash. I, I don't know if you if you were like into the album as a whole at the time when it was out, but I loved this album. <laughs> and it it was so almost avant-garde in certain ways. Like there were songs that were almost not songs. <laughs> they were more like uh, sounds with like talking over them and things like that. I, I, I don't know. Just such a cool album and such a, I'm so glad that I was like into this album when I was 13 and 14 years old, because I could have very easily been into like, dude, think about this. We're around the same age. I talked mm-hmm. to, I talked to people about this recently. We were at an influential an influential age for music at a time when music was so cool. But if we were five years older, we may have been listening to some bullshit like White Snake or something or some mm-hmm. kind of like hair metal. Or if we were five years younger, we may have been listening to like the radio rock from the late nineties. Like we we may have been like influenced by like Vertical Horizon or something. No, and I'm not it- I'm not talking shit, but like we were very lucky to be surrounded by like people that were taking artistic chances and making wild music and not just, not just conforming to what was popular at the time. Yeah. I think it was a very, the early nineties, like we we can maybe even go 88, 89, late eighties into early, early to mid nineties was a very transitional period. You had a, a new map, like a new territory being developed um, and it really didn't last that long. I feel like it burned out, at least in the mainstream sense. I don't know if it's quickly or not when you're speaking of the industry and how fast um, trends move. But I feel like it's this very specific era of the 90s where this was allowed to happen. And then because it was so... There's like this kind of weird space here where you get really talented artists doing really cool things that sound easy. And by that I mean... A lot of this stuff sounds like they're just kind of like this kind of hodgepodge, kind of careless approach to creating silly things. And when you get artists on the back end of this era combined with a very hungry industry, like trying to find the next Nirvana and find the next whatever, you had this wake, this style of music that attempted to continue what was being done in the early 90s, but it was kind of falling short in a lot of ways. And eventually you end up with Creed and Nickelback and those are easy targets, but I think that's this kind of hangover right? from what was able to be done in a very, very amazing and, and a meaningful way in the early 90s. So when you think about a band like, obviously, the, the biggest culprit in the Creed sense is going to be Pearl Jam, because Versus came out in 93, and you have this very ungraceful decline in terms of rock music uh, in the late 90s into the the 2000s all on the back of the the alternative music scene in the 90s when it kind of like surfaced yeah it's interesting you you bring up pearl jam because i know you're a big pearl jam fan Mm -hmm. and you know what people what rock bands that followed pearl jam that got popular late now i think late 90s yeah you brought up you brought up creed and and of course nickelback the easy targets but what What's crazy is what those bands took away from Pearl Jam wasn't the like wildly inventive songwriting <laughs> and shit. What they took away from them was, yeah, this vocal styling that was only on like maybe one and a half records of Pearl Jam's whole discography. One a right. voice that Eddie quickly moved away from. Right. It's such a shame that that's what that's what came out of this, and and not like the crazy like. Vitalogy, what a what a yeah. like amazing like s- from the songs to the I don't know every everything about it the freaking layout of the album yeah is, like every, everything about it is like incredible but yet yeah that's what we get that's what we get later is like people trying to knock off the the butt rock uh, <laughs> voice or whatever you want to call that thing but back to the breeders yes. in this album I exactly what you were saying is. An album like Last Splash sounds like to the untrained person or or someone like it just sounds like people like having fun in their garage and like doing whatever. But then when when I look and maybe that's what I thought at the time. But now when I look back at that, I'm like, 
these songs wouldn't be easy to write no. and, and finding these tones and finding the this like the way this like sounds warm and it sounds like they're getting like these crazy sounds and like and it sounds lo-fi but like okay if that's easy to do then go go right now go record something that sounds like that and and you'll find that it's not it's not easy to do that and what they did was incredible like, yeah you wonder i mean you and i have both been in the studio in various contexts over in at various levels of availability of gear right? right so some some studios have less gear some studios have more gear and you spend time in the studio trying to get a certain tone and a lot of these tones for us at least in my experience has been referenced on the 90s and some of the guitar tones that were achieved in that era particularly though i mean uh, the breeders and cannibal is a great example the tones are really rad uh, on that record. So you wonder, as much effort as artists do put into finding tones they want in the studio, the way the guitar sounds or the way the drums sound, you know how difficult it is. And you have this kind of really weird category of lo-fi come out. And what does that mean, right? It's You're trying to accomplish something that, at least in terms of how people talk about it, is a product of low budgets, Right. But we're, we're in these spaces now trying to mimic right. these guitar tones that we think of being lo-fi or sounding accidental, sounding like they just put a mic up and got lucky. But I wonder how much they were thinking about that uh, in the time being. I'm, I'm looking at the uh, personnel for Last Splash right now, and Kim Deal produced it. This guy named Sean Leonard, who I don't know, uh, was the engineer, um, as far as, uh, as well as Mark Freeberg, Freeguard. So... Not to get too nerdy, but I'm just looking at this list of personnel, like how much were they involved in achieving these really rad sounds um, that ended up being on this record? You know, it's crazy. The lo-fi as a, as a category of sound is interesting just because it's spoken about as if it was a result of low budgets, um, maybe inexperience in the, in the garage, so to speak. Um, but now you have bands post that era that are trying to achieve that sound uh, to the degree that it becomes like this kind of descriptive genre. Right. Right. And I think that's really interesting to me because now we're trying to spend so much time getting these tones um, and these sounds that a lot of ways are spoken about as if they're accidental or just kind of on the fly. And I think that's really interesting and in how rich these tones coming out of the nineties were in these songs. Right. And you know, one of the guys, the number one guy I think of who didn't produce this album, but I do believe he produced some stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, he produced Pod. Steve Albini. I feel mm -hmm. like he is like the guy, like the, the definition of this. Did you guys ever, you guys didn't record with Steve Albini ever, right? No, my man Demons thought about it because uh, the cool thing about Steve Albini is that he's super accessible despite doing all these major influential right. records. You can still just... As long as he's free, he's going to go up to his space in Chicago and record you. Yeah, he doesn't take points and all that yeah. kind of stuff. He's crazy. Uh, my buddy <laughs> Scott, uh, he plays in the band Zayo. And oh, we okay, play, yeah. We, we play together in this band Pack. But he Zayo recorded with Steve Albini, and he told me all about it and how awesome it was. And, you know, but even when he talks about it, which I'm, you know, uh, I'm not going to like, I'll let him come on here and talk about it sometime. But basically <laughs> the point was like, like, yeah, it was like, it was a no frills type experience. It was mm -hmm. like what you'd expect. You're playing live. You're, you're not uh, fucking around. Like things like you and I are probably used to a lot of times yeah. in the studio, like making sure everything is perfect or whatever, which I, I, you know, with, with punchline and I'm, I'm sure with me too, try not to do that these days i feel like maybe maybe 15 20 years ago you're always trying to make everything as perfect as possible but then you start to realize you start to realize a little later on that like okay if it sounds too perfect then it's going to sound like a processed mm -hmm. thing and it's going to lose all of its actual feeling in life and you, you kind of i should i should have listened to the last splash when i was a kid i should have known that <laughs> i should have known that from the start that like an album's going to be way cooler if you don't go overboard with making it perfect in mm -hmm. air quotes um well, i think we could talk forever on a different episode or, or what have you about philosophies around recording, right? Obviously, Steve right. Albini has a very direct and intentional approach to recording that is that some people talk about as being philosophical, but he just does these recordings, 
right? And you have the other other end of the spectrum in which you can kind of go in and use all the tools at your disposal, which I'm totally fine with, depending on the project, you know? So I think, you know, they did Pod with Steve Albini. Uh, uh, the Breeders did their first record, Pod, and that's the one record that um, Steve Albini speaks so fondly um, now, speaking about, like, records he's done that have been really meaningful for him. It was his first Breeders record called Pod. I know um, Kurt Cobain speaks very, very highly of this record as being influential to what right. they were doing. So for this band to influence and be a part of this movement so much, or uh, to such a um, meaningful degree, um, only to have this kind of, because this is a podcast about kind of one-hit wonders. So to, here's this band that was so involved in the, the cultural movement, but still, like so many other bands that were in that same place, only got kind of one quote-unquote hit from this era for them. Right. And I, I want to, I do want to note real quick that one hit isn't a bad thing, yeah. <laughs> you know, because there's a lot of, a lot of these bands, even some of the bands that got the big deals and whatever don't have a hit. So like, it's very cool that the breeders, the breeders could have very easily been a successful indie rock, uh, more, more of like underground, even though they were signed mm -hmm. to a major label at that point or whatever, that, that, they could have not had a hit, but they, but Cannonball is a hit. That album, Last Splash, went platinum. That means they sold a million copies of Last Splash, which is such a, you know, strange album to to do that. But it's so awesome that it did. To talk a little bit, to, to kind of focus the conversation on Last Splash and, you know, more specifically, Cannonball a little bit. Uh, Last Splash is almost like, a, well, Cannonball is almost like a, uh, the title track of the album because mm -hmm. the album's title comes from the song. Yeah. Uh, and I say this all the time. I'm a big fan of bands and music where that, that artist or that band, nothing else sounds like them. Mm -hmm. If, if I don't know anything else that sounds like the breeders, I mean, maybe, maybe they sound a little bit like the pixies because you have, a, <laughs> you yeah. have a member of the band, but like I, I actually, prefer the breeders in that same kind of world i suppose but uh cannonball the bait i'm a bassist so of course i'm like oh Dude, man. like that that carries the song in such a rad way the bass line oh so good so iconic um, that is like the the bass line of the 90s <laughs> <laughs> that i'll say that is a bass line that one of the most iconic bass lines of the 90s one of the most immediately recognizable bass lines that you hear from the 90s um, yeah. along with space hogs in the meantime yeah man um, we talked about that such a good baseline <laughs> hey i will also one more i gotta throw one more in there as a basis flea's baseline from soul to squeeze is one of my favorites it's that's my favorite red chili pepper song of all time oh dude so mine too but okay so speaking of how the industry we mentioned earlier in the podcast how things are so different nowadays in terms of how people listen to music and how people create music um, compared to the 90s. You mentioned also that this record, Last Splash, went platinum. And for a record that went platinum, it peaked at 33 on the U.S. Billboard chart, and the record went platinum. So I think that's kind of wild Yeah, that a record that did that well selling in the United States didn't peak higher than 33. I think that speaks a lot to how successful... The music industry in general was how many people how many records people were selling and the single cannonball was number 39 the top 40 mainstream at peak position and number two on the modern rock tracks so it did really well as a modern rock track i mean that's crazy because yeah i mean that is almost it's almost like borderline whether it's even considered a hit it kind of it kind of kind of depends on who you act to us yeah. to us it is absolutely a hit and it is obviously the breeders biggest song and it, you know it was on mtv and it was you know not not just mtv but like think about how i don't know if you were like me back then but i taped every sunday night i taped 120 minutes and so i could watch it on monday after school because you know i couldn't really stay up from midnight till 2 a.m yeah on sunday nights but uh, yeah, I mean, the breeders were a staple on that, you know, and not just Cannonball. Were you into the album as a whole or, or were they were they kind of on your on your radar, but not like I mean, a lot of bands were like that for me. So it's not. Yeah, like... they're in my periphery. Right. So okay. to speak for myself, I was a 
Pearl Jam kid. I was a grunge kid in the 90s, right, in middle school. So for me, like, sixth grade and seventh grade is where I really came in to my own, kind of forming my own opinions about what I liked musically. And Pearl Jam was at the top of that list. So for someone who had limited access to that world, like, it was all this kind of, like, Pearl Jam and Pearl Jam's watershed, right? Um, right. So in eighth grade, I started getting more into punk rock. And when I started getting more into punk rock, I became more reactionary um, for a number of reasons. Um, so I'd kind of stay away from stuff that was, um, I was just more interested in finding out punk rock music. And so like 93, that transition from eighth to ninth grade or whatever, I was kind of deeper into that space where I was learning my, well, I was more interested in like finding about no effects and rancid. Right. Dude, we um, are like, you and I are, had like the same exact trajectory <laughs> of like, we should have, we should have been, I, I, I feel like I like this stuff. And not necessarily the breeders, but like the the entire world of music, we should have been celebrating the fact that it was like that it was popular. But then yeah. I, I almost got too cool for it. No, no, I mean you you know I I missed out on so many great so many great bands in the '90s that were live and and, and active <clears throat> because I was so hell bent on kind of who Seven Seconds was like, and I sort of missed a lot. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with who I was hanging out with, who I wanted to be in with. I mean, you know, when you're a kid that age, you're super impressionable. Everything's awful. Everything's great. Um, and so you're just trying your best to, to tread water. Um, and I think my attachment to punk rock and my kind of eschewing of alternative music and the, the more broad alternative scene was, was a result more of just me trying to like figure things out socially. That being said, I found a lot of great punk music, but I missed out on a lot of great uh, quote unquote alternative indie music. Right. And, and, you know, I like, I was into it and shaped by it, influenced it by it. But as I saw it become so popular, I needed to have something that was like a little more underground so I could feel cooler. And I, I got, dude, I'll never forget. I still remember it. I remember going to like a, a UCD place selling all my like Nirvana and like, everybody all all these like iconic albums selling them for like whatever two or three bucks a piece so i could buy cds from like the lookout records kind of yeah yeah like exactly i dude i'm not even kidding guttermouth may have that friendly people album i think it's called that may have been one of the cds i bought but yeah exactly i wanted to get lookout records i wanted to get fat records i wanted to get epitaph and i wanted to get whatever dr strange and and then we won't even get into a few years later when i had to have every ska album uh oh. but you know that that's that's just so crazy you're, when you're that you're that age and like you can't see past the oh this lame person in my class is wearing a uh nirvana shirt so i'm gonna get rid of <laughs> i'm gonna get yeah. rid of these cds now but anyway yeah the the breeders i actually kept my breeders cd because you liked it they weren't yeah, I liked it, and I I still like it. That I don't know if you're familiar. Do you know the song "Divine Hammer"? I listened to it recently on the playlist that was circulated, and I love I that song. Focused on it because you said you liked it so much. It it's definitely it sounds like it's recorded in another room or something like the way it's recorded is so strange because it's it sounds very it sounds very lo-fi, but it's so catchy. And oh man, I love Kim Dill's voice. Kim Dill's a great wow. voice. I just can't get over that intro that like in the video, you know, when they show her in the water. Uh-huh. From the kind of like being under the water. Just right. for a shot that I remember like distinctly through all my years. Like when that, that that's another thing about the video that made it stand out, at least for me, I guess to Spike Jones's and Kim Gordon's credit. Um, there were these shots that were just kind of like burned into my memory. And the opening of that video being one of those shots where they're in the water and the bubbles are coming out of their mouth and they're going, oh, uh, like that's yeah. so cool. Yeah. It's so awesome, man. Spike, dude, what would you get? I, I would give anything to make a music video with Spike Jones. <laughs> I would I would give a lot. That's for sure. <laughs> I know. Dude, you know what's crazy too? I don't know. Maybe, maybe May has. A, I know Punchline never has. But have you ever thought about like hitting him up? No. <laughs> I mean, that's what's funny is like, you never know, like he did do a lot of like, you know, he's probably not going to, he probably doesn't even want to do music videos anymore or whatever, yeah. but like, you never, like a lot, a lot of things in life, like, I'm like, well, I never asked. Yeah. <laughs> I, I never like made an effort to like make that happen. I'm just like, oh no, there's no way that could ever happen. But like, you know, that's what's, 
kind of wild is like i don't know may may's pretty big band man you guys are pretty popular do you ever think of like reaching out to spike jones you know jacob's really into um the virtual reality world so maybe if he can kind of like hit spike jones up with a very creative idea that would interest spike jones at this point in his career after he's done so much revolutionary work you know who knows i'll talk to jacob about it maybe in a year and a half or so you'll see a may video directed by spike jones and jacob marshall um yeah would be rad. You know, on the topic of creative people coming up in the 90s, I wish we talked about like our age range, how we were kind of in this very impressionable age at a very important time in music. What if I was like a few years older, though, and I was like a college kid in the Northeast and like the nine in 1992? That's something I fantasize a lot about just being in the music scene as a college student at like NYU or Brown or something you know, predictable like that, you know, unoriginal. Just being this person, seeing these shows like the Pixies and the Breeders and Nirvana and Alice in Chains and, you know, you name it, come through in these very kind of small club levels. I don't know. I fantasize about that a lot. I just think back, you know? Yeah, it's wild. It's wild to to think of, who, yeah, who people saw as if they, like, I, I think about the fact there's, there's this dude in Pittsburgh who he's just like this eccentric promoter who's been promoting shows forever. His name's Manny. And he like, if you're from Pittsburgh and you play music, you know who Manny is. Mm-hmm. He's just this, this wild like character who's brought, you know, brought in every band that you could, but, but like the most obscure bands before they were huge. And yeah. it's always some kind of terrible story about how like uh, modest mouse played at this, whatever this rundown place and then they were pissed because he like they didn't pay him enough so they threw a brick through his window or like you know nirvana slept on his couch and blah, blah all this kind of like wild ass stories uh but in pittsburgh he's like the dude that's probably seen every band when they were playing in front of 10 people and brought mm-hmm. them in i'm sure that he was at his doing the most shows ever at, at that time when things were just like every band was just popping off uh, yeah, because there was this boom of signing every uh, band, every pro- probably every band that Kurt Cobain had something to say about. <laughs> because you know the Breeders, like you know that you know that uh, Kurt Cobain loved Pod, and mm-hmm. there's no way that didn't help. I mean, the fact that Kim Dill was in the Pixies probably helped. Oh, <laughs> but look at look at uh, Daniel Johnston. All it took was Kurt Cobain wearing a Daniel Johnston T-shirt, <laughs> and that probably increase daniel johnston's uh record sales by 1000 <laughs> yeah just just a mention or a shirt wear is gonna do it if, if it's kirk Bain doing the wearing hello it is ryan and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day couldn't we just to make up for things like sitting in traffic doing the dishes counting your steps you know all the mundane stuff that is why i'm such a big fan of chumba casino chumba casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere with daily bonuses that should brighten your day a little actually a lot so sign up now at chumbacasino.com that's chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary btw void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus i'm not gonna lie here i've become a factor fanatic lately i'm a busy guy and getting to eat restaurant quality meals that are ready to heat and eat in two minutes has been amazing eating better is easy with factors delicious ready to eat meals every fresh never frozen meal is chef crafted dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes you have 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. And also, there are more than 60 add ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. I've been spreading the word to everyone I know, not just here on the podcast, but in person as well. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. You get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. And the math doesn't lie. Factor is less expensive than takeout. Plus, considering every meal is dietitian approved, it's also nutritious and delicious. So what are you waiting for? Get started today by heading to factormeals.com slash one hit 50 and use the code one hit 50 to get 50% off. That's code one hit 50. The words one hit and the number 50 that is at factormeals.com slash one hit 50 to get 50% off. Let's talk about the lyrics of this song. Yeah. Another let's talk about thing that. that is 
in my mind, like I said, it's a quintessential 90s song. And I think the lyrics uh, as well fit to this kind of description. I was reading them last night or uh, two nights ago. And I'm just like, you know, it's a great launching point to talk about lyrics and why some lyrics that don't seemingly make any sense relate um, that we can relate to in a, in a weird way. And I think this is a perfect example of it. So let's go. You know, a lot of times, you know, when you're in a band and you're talking about lyrics, I know I have a lot of conversations with Steve about this over the years, is like you have this borderline of do you want the lyrics to hit you over the head and make sense or do you want the lyrics to be abstract and, mm -hmm. and assign your own meaning to it? And this is a song where you absolutely need to assign your own <laughs> meaning to this. And, you know, it's it's want you cuckoo cannonball <laughs> in the sh in the shade in the shade in the shade in the shade i know you little libertine i know you're a cannonball i'll be whatever you want the bong in this reggae song like <laughs> i never knew what she was saying and i was like i was like that makes sense that i wouldn't know because i would never imagine that line to be in this song the bong in this reggae song that's so weird it it's, it's spitting in a wishing well, blown to hell, crash. I'm the last splash. <laughs> it's, I'll tell you what. I, my favorite lyric in the song is going to be either spitting in a wishing well, which is the first line of the song, which is rad. Um, mm -hmm. A great image, kind of an angsty '90s type thing, you know. Yep. Um, and I know you, little libertine. Yeah. Everything else, I'm just like, I know you're a real cuckoo. I mean, that's like that reminds me of the magnetic, magnetic fields. Yeah, Bell and Sebastian. Uh, Bell, Bell and Sebastian, you're you're yep. correct. You're right on. I'm just wondering. I mean, obviously, you know, I don't want to essentially sensationalize or trivialize the problems that uh, was it. Kelly Deal that had more drug issues. I think that Kim had alcoholism. I think as uh -huh. well. But I just right. wonder. These songs kind of speak to this kind of environment as well in the '90s of just kind of like references to at least being a youngster reading about this stuff. They always mention drug references and just being this kind of right. like haze and writing these lyrics that just only make sense when you're under the influence of something. I don't know. That's just me spitballing, Chris. Yeah. Well, Hey, I never thought about it till you just said it. I can't believe I've never thought about this, but spitting in a wishing well is such a good lyric and such a good nineties lyric yeah. like that. That is exactly what I would do as this young <laughs> punk where this wishing well, where you're supposed to, you're supposed to go and throw a coin in and make a wish. But you know, it's like that scene in the Goonies that's really motivational when they're down underneath the in the in the underground and they have this right. like who what character has a really uh great monologue about like I'm taking him back. He made in a wishing well and he's taking it back and taking them all back. Like, whatever. I'm spitting the wishing well regardless. You know, I always used to believe that when you threw your money in, it turned into your wish. You may not know this, but I, I, thanks to our producer, Matt, I do have, and I, I researched this. I found out some of what this song's about. Let's do it. And it's, it might be interesting to you as a guy, you're, you're into philosophy and obviously, and you uh, are very into literature and things like that. And I thought this was very interesting. What Kim Deal said about, I'll, I'll read you what she said. She said, um, as for the song's meaning, it's about Kim Deal's resentment of how she was treated by Frank Black towards the end of the Pixies run, as well as inspired by a bi biography of, I don't know how to pronounce his name. Is it Marquez de, de Sade? It's Marquez de Sade. Because that's where, I, I, I thought maybe it was Sade because that's where the term Sadism comes from, correct? Yeah, I think because it's French, it's going to be Marquis de Sade. But hey, don't, I'm not trying to say that as an authority. I know it's, it's, I know it's Marquis because it's French. Um, de Sade, yeah. I believe that's the way you pronounce it. But um, if anyone's listening, I'm not trying to make a claim on that, but I think that's what it is. Okay, but I think um, you're right. Continue. <laughs> uh, so Kim Deal's quote is, Cannonball is the first single. So this is a good one to tell you about because Last Splash, the title of the album, comes from some of the lyrics in the song. My sister was reading a biography of Marquez de Sade, and I'm making fun of him. I'm saying, 
oh, you little libertine, you're a real cuckoo. If you want to go to hell, if you want to go to hell, come on, let's go to hell. Don't just jump in, do a cannonball. It's when you tuck your legs up and you make the biggest splash you can. And you know what? I'm going to be right behind you. I'm going to be the last fucking splash. It's a commitment. It's a commitment to hell, I guess, which is so cool. Like I, I, and I didn't even know who, do you know who Marquez this this odd is yeah he's this notoriously what's the right word a sinister um yeah. figure in french history that kind of represented uh the, the idea of a libertine like a complete freedom to the point of abuse yeah um, you become and, sadistic because you have no limits to what yeah. you can do because you're you're wealthy and you have no no one could tell you not to do something you know, so you just exactly. do whatever. So, so basically, basically Trump. <laughs> well, uh, yes, I just won't give that Trump that much credit in terms of meaning, in terms of uh, in terms of oh, yeah. principle that informs a very abusive type of behavior. French um, social theorist named Michel Foucault wrote about Marquis de Sade, and also uh, Albert Camus, another French writer, wrote about Marquis de Sade as well. Because he represented this very French idea of liberty, but at the same time, you're right. Right, the term um, sadism comes from this, from what this guy was doing in terms of keeping people chained up. Like people, people were just entire objects to his own pleasure. They were just kind of a means to an end. However, his end was not rooted in any kind of, I don't know, goal, teleological purpose. It was just like for the purposes of his amusement, and so. The idea here, going back to the song of Kim Deal. Um, now, I want to be clear on did Kelly Deal write this song or was it Kim Deal? From from what I'm getting from Kim Deal's quote, it's Kim Deal at least wrote the lyrics. Yeah, okay. She's she's talking about how her sister was reading the book about Marquez okay. de Sade. Yeah, and so and so she wanted to comment on that i suppose the idea that she was kind of like going along kind of like this kind of like an uh intentional kind of okay let's do it you know let's do it marquis let's let's yeah together (laughs) i'm gonna be right behind you that's really interesting and obviously we don't want to speculate but i mean to 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 align yourself for marquis de sad could be kind of problematic right like so it would kind of be like in the same in the same way that I mean, because supposedly the guy—it's not supposedly. I think it's a fact. The guy was a pedophile. He was a awful. He was awful. Yeah, he was an yeah. abusive pedophile. Was what he was. So like, it, it's kind of problematic in the same way. It's like, okay, I really like the mo- the book and the movie Clockwork Orange. But then when you look at it, it's like, ah, oh, why? Why do I like this? Yeah, uh, it, it's interesting, but it's also really fucked up. <laughs> I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a a good thing to talk about when it comes to the 90s i feel like there was a lot of that, that stuff there's a lot around. there's uh, a lot of um, that going around and i think you know another thing about the 90s <clears throat> in relation to now is how certain things were given a green light given a pass um that wouldn't fly now i don't right. think this song would kind of fall into that i'm not saying no. you suggest that i just think okay well uh, the lens that we kind of look through 90s music now is obviously contextualized by in a positive sense, the uh, the raising of certain voices that were marginalized in the 90s, um, particularly, uh, obviously, um, women when it comes to representation of sex and sexism. And I think another thing, and we have this band, I think in the 90s as well, you had this kind of thing where you, so many women are making rad music and kind of coming to the fore and, and claiming their own ground um, in this scene that has been so long and still is dominated um, by men. So you have the Deal Sisters, you have Liz Fair. Um, oh, yeah. the girl movement, you have Elastica, a lot of these kind of women that are making really um, great lasting music um, that we're still obviously talking about today. Don't forget about my favorite of all time. This is this is the era that that really uh, birthed the solo career of Bjork as well. Bjork, like, yeah, in a, in a league of her own. When it comes to music, I when someone asks me who my favorite artist of all time is i always say bjork and i even pronounce her name correctly that's how much i like her <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm over here like bjork yeah that's how i mean i feel weird saying it correctly but at some point i think i think the first person like i knew that's how you pronounce it 
but I was I always felt like pretentious pronouncing it that way. But then um, I think it was. Uh, do you know? Do you happen to know Vince Ratty, who was in Zoloft, the Rock and Roll Destroyer? He went on. He, he's a producer. I don't know if you've ever. I know that we we played shows with Zoloft back when they was starting line in Zoloft. They're from Pennsylvania, right? Yeah, yeah. Point being that he's the first person I ever heard like pronounce it normal even though i knew and i was like okay i'm gonna do that too if vince is doing that i'm doing that too (laughs) but getting away from the point a little bit here being that oh the one other thing i'm going to talk about is she she straight up talking about how she was treated poorly by frank black who so i guess is a fucking asshole you know because i've heard well this story and one other story Kim, it was a Kim from the Muffs. Yes, Kim Shattuck about how yeah. she stage stage dived, and he said, yeah. or at least the manager came up to her afterward, or the tour manager, whoever, uh, yeah, and said, "You can't do that." Those two stories, this one and the, and that one, kind of are at least enough for me to think, okay, at least, okay, well, okay, Frank Black, what's going on? You know, right, right. I mean, and you know, it could just be. I I don't know if you've. I mean, we don't, we're not going to name names on this podcast because it'd be so easy for me to do that. (laughs) But, you know, you meet these people along the way when you're in touring bands. And I will say this, 90, I would say 98.7% of the people that I've toured with over the years have been cool people. And not, not necessarily everybody is like my best friend, but for the most part, they're pretty cool people. But every once in a while you meet that one. (laughs) Where you're like, fuck that guy. <laughs> and and sometimes it's just an asshole. But sometimes that, that same person is is at the same time like a a savant in a way. Yeah. But but maybe sometimes a symptom of that is that you're not necessarily a good person. Yeah. I mean, do you do you think do you think Kurt Cobain was a good person? I, I, I wonder about this a whole lot. I've um I read a book recently by who is the manager of Nirvana? I forget his name. He just wrote a book. I don't know. It's called Serving the Servant. And he painted Kirk Cobain in a very, very positive light. He also really? painted Courtney Love in a very, very positive light. After that, I read a book about Mud Honey. And they painted a different, very different picture of Nirvana. Not necessarily a one saying that Kirk Cobain was kind of a was they weren't criticizing Kirk Cobain. They're just criticizing the Nirvana camp as being kind of uh, you know, just all trying to protect Nirvana and because they're making money off Nirvana. All to say they painted that band in a in a kind of a, a critical light. And my last point to this kind of drawn story, I apologize, is that when I did read another book about Kirk Cobain, I heard that at one point he was taking ninety or ninety-five percent of the publishing royalties from Nirvana songs. Wow. Is that a, a, a dick move? I think it depends on who you ask and how they think about creativity. I think it's a little excessive considering how important Dave Grohl and Chris Novoselic were to the songs. All that said, the jury's out. I'm sorry. I can't. <laughs> right. I mean, did you see the? I mean, his own daughter made that or produced that HBO documentary. I forget what it was called. Oh, uh, something what's it called montage of heck montage of heck i mean that didn't paint him very in a very good light and that was his own daughter making that so i don't know i mean obviously she's uh you know i it it just made him look really bad although he was he was very uh heavily addicted to drugs so yeah that's the thing like i don't and i can't obviously none of us can like even begin to uh estimate or guess how crazy his life must have been as this frontman of nirvana um and i don't want to speak a lot about you know people talking about the pressures on certain people in certain positions i think that's entirely valid um and so how could you know who knows how it kind of impacted um uh his personality or his person that was already inflicted by you know his own life growing up so who knows but he seemed like he was just someone that uh, was trying to kind of negotiate his emotions and his anger in a, in a world that was that he could do whatever he wanted in, you know? Right. Right. But you know, anyway, anyway, we, we could, we could talk about Kurt Cobain forever. We're, we're talking about the breeders. breeders. I'm sure, I always like to think about on, on this podcast. So 
there's probably not that many episodes of podcasts about the breeders out there. That's a good point. I'm kind of thinking to myself, like, hey, at some point, maybe maybe Kim Dill will listen to this. She'll go, oh, there's a podcast. And and Kim Dill, I apologize if we talked about Nirvana too much on here. We, wanted- we want to apologize if we're if we're speaking too speculatively. Um, we're obviously going with very little bit of evidence, but we love the band. We love the song. I listened to a podcast that Kim Deal did with Mark Marin, and she seemed like an amazing, just fun person. Just wanted to hang out and talk. I feel like Mark Marin, like from what I remember, like you know, she just wanted to talk and hang out about a lot of things. Uh, are you a fan of Mark Marin's podcast? Do you listen to it? I listen to it a lot. I listen to it. anytime there's a guest that I care to listen to. I skip the ones where I don't know who the guest is. But um, yeah, yeah, same. But if if you haven't heard the Kim Deal one. Um, it's a great listen. Uh, she's kind of silly in like a, a, an endearing way. Um, nice. And it's rad. It's always really cool when the people that you like are actually cool people. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> uh, hey, you know, we got to talk about this real quick. When when we're talking about Nirvana and things like that, and was Kurt Cobain cool guy? Or was he not? Whatever. Dave Grohl seems like the coolest guy ever in music, almost to a point where it's like, all right, dude, we get it. Like, <laughs> we get it. You're cool. You rock. You're nice. We get it. Like, almost to the point, like, but I had to, like, stop myself from having that attitude about it because it'd be very easy not to. But my point was, you freaking, didn't you tour with them? Yeah, May did a tour with Nirvana. Oh, that's, that's <laughs> me projecting my own fantasies. May did a tour with Foo Fighters and Weezer. Which is just insane. Insane. Yes. We got a call, and I think it was during the – it must have been like 2007 or 2006 or something. We got a call, uh, and we got on three dates because – how do you pronounce that band? Kasabian? Kasabian? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always thought it was Kasabian. But... They dropped off. They had something happen. And so we got three shows um, through uh, Atlanta and Florida, and then we got three more uh, out to Texas. It was your typical arena rock experience in the sense that we didn't see too much of the the headliners. I saw Brian right. Bell walking around one time, um, maybe Patrick Wilson. Never saw Rivers backstage. At one point, we were walking around, and me and Dave were walking just through the backstage area, and, and Taylor Hawkins invited us into the dressing room. And uh, this was like just me just on cloud nine. Obviously, Taylor Hawkins is a rad drummer. Right. Super cool dude. He was asking us what we thought about the show. I can't speak for Dave, but I was just kind of like super nervous and trying my best not to make a fool of myself. And I never met Dave, unfortunately, but they were super cool. Um, as a band, they were just the the touring crew was all rad. So back to this point about Dave Grohl, uh, and then we will get back to the breeders. You know, he has this persona, and I think what he's done for rock music uh, beyond the um, the '90s is maintained a very and been able to emphasize a very good um, approach to, to music in general that I think is not superior to other approaches, but much needed to be maintained in this environment right now. Right. I do think like he's Dave Grohl being Dave Grohl at this point. And, you know, I think, I think here's one here. with you, I could go on and talk like, um, you know, with the idea that people listen to this, I only have positive things to say about Dave Grohl. If I wanted to be nitpicky, then I will talk to you about it on the phone one night. <laughs> or- <laughs> my, nit- my, my nitpicky thing that I'm not afraid to say about Dave Grohl, and I love him. I love his music. I think he's the coolest dude ever. I'd love to sit down and talk to him, and he, he's amazing. Yeah. But the one thing I would say that I've heard brought up before is that his attitude about, like, dude, you just got to get out there and rock, that doesn't necessarily, like, always work if – By work, I mean, if you want to be a career musician, it doesn't, you have to like have like things like a team and a plan and uh, some luck and whatever. And it doesn't, that approach doesn't always work when you weren't in Nirvana. Yeah. (laughs) So that would be my one critical thing, I would say. One thing, I mean, that's honestly what I would have said to you in a bar one night. It's just like, okay, well, it's almost anachronistic at this point because in one sense, like, if you want to be successful, it's not as romantic as that. Um, right. he, I think he has the the privilege of hindsight and massive success on his side. So he can speak to this experience that is his, but it's not everyone's. And like I said, um, I think ethically and philosophically, his voice needs to be 
continuously um, emphasized. However, right. in terms of the kind of experience people have these days um, and, and, and music and touring, um, it's just not the same. You and I came up as, as well, like in the playing music professionally in the early 2000s, it was a very golden era for bands in our genre at our level because things were going really well. But that quickly ended, you know, like when 2007 and eight and nine came around, things kind of tapered off a little bit. So I think everything needs to be thought of in terms of when it was being said, continually right. speaking. And I think Dave Grohl's experience was a unique one, an influential one and a positive one. Um, but yeah, it's just not, it's not as simple as having an attitude. Right. For sure. Um, For sure. And what's cool is that just like, just like you and I continually do and try to do is yeah maybe the in the worlds of music that may and punchline have been involved in uh maybe there's been this ebb and flow and this wave where things come into style and things go out and whatever but the the important thing is to stay true to what you love mm-hmm. continue finding a path to to continue making music and uh and not have to stop doing that and just like just like we have been part of things that have risen and fallen and come back and 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 went out and things like that you have to i feel like in the same way the breeders yeah the the high tide of that their world of music may have been in the 90s but they have they have also had successful music careers going. They just released a new album that last year. Um, they're always going to have that between the breeders themselves and the pixies and things like that. You have, they'll always have people interested in what they do. And then it's just on them to make cool music. <laughs> you know, that's a, well, that's this band was a side project of the Pixies and Throne Muses to think about this band as a side project. is really crazy. They're able to then record, you know, last splash in 93 and make such an impact on the music scene. Um, and I think, you know, uh, our experience is limited. I would love to be able to talk with people that were around that world to, to speak to things that they were going through and having to deal with uh, that we don't really have a have an in on i mean they released their last record in 2018 that said um no yeah all nerve um which right. i have not spent much time with because i think it's another whole conversation about how music means something based on when it's heard and where it's heard and how old you were or where you were right um, and i think for us seeing this video for cannonball in 1993 and just being for whatever reason uh ways that we understood or maybe didn't understand mesmerized and kind of floored by what we were seeing and what we were hearing. I mean, that yeah. drum beat was just like the kind of focus on the hi-hat and the hi-hat stand, that roll that goes into the chorus. That's kind of like followed by the, the guitar kind of like scraping the like strings. I don't know what you call it, like a chug, whatever. I don't know what it is, uh-huh. but that stuff is, is really rad. And I was like, those are stylistic hinge points, linchpins uh, for a lot of bands moving forward. They were doing this stuff that was very, very, uh, influential um, that all came out of this era of, of music in the 90s. All, dude, all that, the music. dude, Cannonball has, since you're bringing it up, so many things that are signature. Like, most songs, you're lucky if you have that one signature thing mm-hmm. about it. But this song, it has, ooh, to start it out. It has that, the, yeah, the, 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 symbol and stand thing the beat that you're talking about uh it has the yeah the drum fill that goes into the chorus it has well the chorus itself the very distorted where you can't you don't even really understand what she's saying there's so many one thing that i and demons i've i've from day one i was just really into distorted everything distorted vocals yeah i think that's another thing we we see this happening in a mainstream sense I should say on a song that had success in the mainstream, um, you know, like that's super cool to me. I think the guitar line that like, yeah. So when you hear that, you immediately know. So again, to your point, you have these moments that occur in the song 
The song is only three minutes and 36 seconds. And you have, it's almost like that Def Leppard song photograph where every part of the song is a hook. In this sense, every part of the song is something that we remember and we can see in other places after the song was released. I mean, I didn't even say the bass line. I didn't, I mean, when you're, yeah, the guitar, the bass, everything about this song is a hook. Everything about this song is a, it's, oh man, what a, what a perfect song. Kim Dale, if you're listening right now, you wrote a perfect song. And what I will say is, I don't know if Kim Dale is listening. If I were Kim Dale, if I saw there was a podcast about, (laughs) specifically about Cannonball, I'd probably listen to it. But Kim Dale, here's what I want to say. And Zach, I'll give you a chance to say something to Kim Dale too, if you have something to say. But here's what I would say. Hey, I was a young kid when this came out. I was not like a college, like a a college age person or like a person who I didn't even know who the Pixies were. Yeah. And this song came out and I loved it and uh, instantly bought the CD. Uh, It was a buzz clip at the time on MTV. I believe it like the same time as like, linger and i think maybe loser <laughs> uh or i don't know i that i just i just grouped those songs together and that those are amazing songs too that we could talk about some other time but you know you made something that in my you know my opinion is better than than anything the, the pixies did i like the pixies too but like uh the this is the, the you know one of the greatest songs of the 90s we always talk on this podcast about whether the song was a one-hit blunder, meaning it was a one-hit wonder, and that whoever that artist was shouldn't have had anything, which I would put like, I would I would put like Aqua and Tom Cochran in that and stuff like that. But but or is it one-hit thunder, which is the name of the podcast? I would say this song is about as one-hit thunder as it gets, and I'm sure that you would agree. Yeah, uh, honestly, building on what you just said, I agree with everything, um, and. We talk about the song as being that's on the podcast as a one hit wonder, but in, and I think I can speak for Chris and I both. It's not a one hit anything. It's, a, it's something that's kind of we heard once and we kept the feeling the song gave us was something we kept chasing ever since we heard songs like Cannonball and like it and songs like it that came out in the nineties. And it's one of the reasons why we do or have done our best to build a life that revolves around music in some sense. Songs like these, when we hear songs like Cannonball that we hear when we're eighth graders um, doing this awesome stuff we don't understand, uh, but we get at the same time. Um, so yeah, you wrote a great song. You, Everyone in the band at the time um, wrote a great song. Hats right. off, Kim Deal and the Breeders. Hell yeah. You come back around all the, all these years later, I come back around and I think I like the song even more yeah. like it's like having a conversation with this about the intricacies of the song makes me respect and love it even more. The album last splash is awesome. Uh, and I don't know. Just Well, I'm going to go listen to the song again. Now. Oh yeah, man. Yeah. Cool. Well, it was well, nice talking to you, Zach. So much fun, Chris. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. man. When it gets hard, This has been One Hit Thunder. One Hit Thunder is produced by Matt Kelly as part of the Geekscape Network and hosted by Chris Fafalios of the bands Punchline, Pack, and Another Cheetah. You can hear the Punchline song Darkest Dark off their album Lion playing underneath me right now. Punchline will be playing Anti-Fest on March 28th in Pittsburgh featuring Annie Flag, Suicide Machines, and many other great bands. Visit punchline.com for tickets as well as news, merch, and other upcoming tour dates. Special thanks to our guest Zach of the bands Demons and May. Demons' new record will be out this summer under Spartan Records. Check out their music on Spotify and follow them on Instagram, Demons Band. Also, May just announced two shows with one-hit Thunder friends and hopeful future guests, Juliana Theory, at the Music Hall of Williamsburg in Brooklyn on June 13th and the Roxy in Hollywood on June 27th. Tickets are now available on May's Instagram. Let us know your thoughts on the show by emailing us at onehitthunderpodcast at gmail or contacting us on all of our social media linked in the show notes. And be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting apps 
We'll be back next week with another episode of One Hit Thunder. When life gets so bleak and scary, this Polaroid will be necessary. When it gets hard. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, you. Do you have any plans this year? Ha! How's that going? Do you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman, and my good friends, Corey Pazin and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony, also got 2020. And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen at 2020-D.com, soundtalentmedia.com, or on your favorite podcast app.